The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the sixth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus came down with the twelve and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. One Sunday, about nine years ago, while I was still serving my former parish in Calamus, Iowa, I drove to North Liberty to visit Doug, my then fiancé. I was very upset over a congregational meeting that had just taken place that had gone quite poorly, one regarding my decision to officiate the marriage of our organist, Jason, and his partner, Chad. The meeting had ended abruptly and angrily with congregants leaving once they had made their points. I drove the hour to North Liberty crying because I was so hurt and offended by what had been said to me specifically and also by what had been said about the LGBTQIA community in general. It is noteworthy for me to mention here that my then fiancé, now husband, was atheist then and remains so today. I pulled into the driveway and I found Doug in the backyard hosing off his patio furniture. I stormed dramatically into the backyard and gave him the rundown of what had transpired at this meeting and proceeded to curl up on a still wet plastic lawn chair. I have lost all my faith in people, I cried. Doug turned off the hose and looked at me and said, shouldn't your faith be in your God and not your people? And then he resumed rinsing off the furniture. This has stuck with me all these years for two reasons. Firstly, you never know who will proclaim the gospel to you, so be prepared to be surprised. 
That day was a Sunday, and I was still wearing my clergy collar when I collapsed in tears on that plastic chair. But it was me being preached to at that moment, and by an unexpected one, a surprising one, one who stands outside the faith. The tables had turned, and the preacher became the parishioner, and the silent one unknowingly proclaimed grace to me. The renouncer had suddenly become the announcer of gospel truth. While I vehemently reject my students' crusade that we now should create a book of Doug to be included in our biblical canon, Imagine what that would do for his ego. I will concede that this sort of thing happens often in the Bible, that gospel truth is often announced by most unexpected people. In the book of Luke alone, an unmarried virgin sings her praises to God after Gabriel announces she will be, in fact, the mother of Jesus. Zacchaeus, the tax collector exemplifies radical hospitality. A widow's meager temple offering illustrates what it means to be truly generous. At the crucifixion, the Roman centurion standing at the foot of the cross praises God and declares, truly, this man was the Son of God. God also calls prophets that are surprising and often unexpected choices, including Jonah, that beloved temper tantrum-throwing prophet, a favorite of mine, or Micah, beckoned by God from a teeny tiny backwater village to preach to both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel, and Jeremiah, whom we read today, who is a resistant child when God calls him. Heck, regarding truth being proclaimed from unexpected sources, there's even that really weird story in Numbers that we never get to preach on when a donkey speaks after receiving punishment from Balaam for refusing to move, which is particularly fun for all the literalists out there. Prepare to be surprised by who will announce good tidings to you. Prepare to be surprised by grace given to you by the most unexpected people. We Christians often suffer from the worst tunnel vision regarding who we expect to be qualified or educated or catechetized, is that a word, enough to preach the gospel. In this way, we limit our encounters with gospel proclamation. In fact, in my life, children too young to speak have proclaimed babbling grace to me. Dying ones too weak to even whisper have embodied silent hope to me. Ones whose language and customs I did not understand have expressed profound welcome and love to me. Prepare to be surprised by who brings you good tidings of great joy. When Doug and I were married, Dr. Dwayne Preby preached our wedding sermon. At that time, although Doug had been baptized and confirmed in the Lutheran Church, as an adult, he really hadn't ever talked to his parents about his atheism. So imagine their surprise 
when Dr. Preeby, in our wedding sermon, said, In their married life together, Sarah will embody grace to Doug through her faith in God. And Doug will embody grace to Sarah in his atheism. And I heard Dorothy gasp. But then Dr. Preeby continued, So you never know from whom good news might come and where grace might be encountered. Be prepared to be surprised by where or whom grace comes from. The second reason I have remembered the hosing off the lawn chair conversation is because it often reminds me of the temptation that we have to put faith in other human beings, sometimes even mistaking that for love. One can certainly trust another person. One can be inspired by or motivated by another person. One can even draw strength from another. But no matter how lovely this person is, they cannot be the source of your faith. For one reason, they will fail you. Humans with the best intent still disappoint. It is unrealistic and extremely problematic to put your faith in another person. This is why I personally do not allow couples that I marry to write their own wedding vows. Never, not once. Because so often, self-written vows go something like this, and I'm sure you've heard them at weddings. You are my everything. I will always be there for you. I will never let you down. What does this do but set the other person up for a failure? Of course your spouse is not everything to you. Of course you'll not always be there for the other, and you're going to let them down. In reality, we all exist in a constellation of relationships provided by God. Some who listen, some who challenge, some who add humor to your life, some who play, some who work, etc., etc. And in this vast network of relationships, we find completion and fulfillment, but not through faith in another human being. Look, I love Doug and my sons with all my heart, but I love them too much to put my faith in them because I do not wish to set them up for failure, do not wish to crush them under my unrealistic expectations. I put my faith in God. I try. And yet, I'm not ashamed to say there are many days I don't even know what that means, truthfully. Is God a pulsating energy holding atoms and molecules together? Is God a life force dragging webbed creatures from some primordial sea, giving them feet and lungs, transforming ape to human? Is God something or someone that one intuits and perceives rather than explains or describes? Is God contained in doctrine, witnessed in nature, revealed through science, art, and culture? In reality, putting faith in God, whatever that means to you, instead of other human beings, is incredibly freeing. It frees us from investing others with the right to draw lines and boundaries between people. However you define God, 
putting faith in him or her or them or it necessarily means divesting myself of the right to draw lines between other people. It means pulling myself outside of myself and my particular ethical ideal or moral code, lifting my eyes from my very own navel to the world. It means I don't need to judge who is blessed and who is woeful. Because the truth is, at any given moment, we live as both blessed and woeful. We stand with one foot in blessing and the other in woe. I think that, truthfully, is human existence, where blessing and woe coexist. Most days, I know that I am wealthy by world standards, as are most of you. And for that, I live in woe, according to today's gospel. But then I also sometimes feel mentally, emotionally, or spiritually poor. And then I am blessed, according to today's gospel. So what does that mean, that God hates us when we're well off and only loves us when we're miserable? Does God draw such harsh lines between the blessed and the woeful? Or is it grayer, hazier, messier than that? Does God also exist in both blessing and woe? I have been both hungry and full at the same time. I have simultaneously laughed and cried, rejoiced and mourned. I have been both despised and loved, hated and celebrated. I have been praised and reviled. I have felt crushing hopelessness and also profound hope. I have felt both vibrant faith and also the absence of it. It is the human condition to live with one foot in blessing and one foot in woe, to be success and fraud at the same time, master and student, hero and villain, king and servant. Someone out there loves you. Someone out there does not. Someone out there sings my praises, while someone else out there probably throws darts at a picture of my face. It is here where we live, in the both and, in the blessing and the woe, not in the either or. Grace is that there are no such teams. There is no team blessing and team woe. So you don't need to be anxious about what team you'll be on. Like you were in sixth grade gym with kickball, you won't be left out or last picked. And if there are no such teams, then there are no such captains, and therefore it is neither your work nor mine to cast people into one camp or another, one team or another. It is neither your work nor mine to determine status, worth, or place based on economic status or sexual orientation or gender identity or political affiliation or place of birth, color of skin, or anything else used by humans to determine blessedness or woe. 
There is only team human. In fact, when Jesus preaches this sermon in today's gospel, Luke makes sure that we understand that the disciples, the huge crowd of people, and the foreigners from afar are all on the plane together. Everyone on a level place, a level playing field. No elevation or prioritization that day. All blessed and woeful. All saints and sinners. Luke is desperate to communicate to people throughout his gospel that God is not interested in hierarchy. Mary sings to God of bringing down the powerful and lifting up the lowly. Zacchaeus climbs a tree way up high and Jesus says, come down. And Jesus' own hometown rejects him when he dares to proclaim God's love for outsiders as well as insiders. God looks at and loves all people on a level playing field. But beware, if we are brash enough to draw a line between us and another person, God will side with the other person. So let us draw no such lines, force no sides, create no teams. It's not either or, but both and. Jesus' Sermon on the Plain also serves in a peculiar way as a warning that during times of blessedness and abundance, be aware that these things might slip away and might, you might one day find your hand begging and outstretched. In your life, you might be rich and poor. If you feel proud and righteous, be aware that one day your status might fall, power might shift, and the guard becomes the prisoner, and the prisoner becomes the guard. Empires fall, economies collapse, stock markets crash. God doesn't hate us when we're wealthy, nor does God only love us if we're miserable. The idea here is that things change. Tables turn. The lowly are lifted up and the powerful brought down. Eventually, over time, throughout life, we find ourselves in all of it, in the blessing and the woe, high and low, powerful and meek, beloved and rejected, king and beggar, living in hell but praying for heaven, hearing words of grace from an atheist lover, trusting prophecies from the mouths of children, and putting faith in a baby called king of kings, born to an unwed mother. Human life is both on the inside and the outside. Sermons are not meant to solve problems. I'm sorry if you came here today hoping that that would be the case. These things are not research papers. Uh, they sort of are. But sermons don't cure cancer. They don't solve current political crises. They don't restore peace. Instead, they bring certain things to light, and that is what today is all about. In preaching this sermon to disciples, friends, and foreigners alike, Jesus astonishes the crowd with his understanding of our messy human condition and is a surprising mouthpiece of grace to those who came expecting only to hear judgment and condemnation. Today not only means opening your ears to hear grace from unexpected people, it also means being prepared to be surprised by what God is calling you to do. Being prepared to be surprised by the words God is calling you to speak to someone who desperately needs to hear them. 
It means daring to have faith in a most profoundly peculiar and loving God who pushes us to reject the either-or, to finally destroy teams of insiders and outsiders, and instead embrace both and, where life is lived and where God is found. Amen.